you would now um, turn to our primary text in 1 John chapter 2. Chapter 2. We'll begin reading the text uh, in verse 18 through 27. It says, Children, it is our last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you... The anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but his, as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Well, I expect that uh, at one time or another, Probably each of us has experienced some unwelcome individual interject themselves into our personal relationships. It might have been in college when that roommate of yours started to have eyes for that boyfriend or girlfriend that you might have been dating and then they left them astray. It might have been your your business partner, a friend of his that lured your business partner away to start another endeavor might even have been an adulterer who was attempting to seduce someone that you know or love. Regardless of the situation, we've all experienced people with impure motives wanting to lead those that we love astray. You know, dating is one thing, business is another. But when this happens at the family level, it really becomes very disturbing, doesn't it? You'll have mother against father, father against son, sibling against sibling, wouldn't you agree that that is one of the most disturbing situations when a family is torn apart by someone else? Now, I've personally witnessed an occasion in an attorney's office where one sibling was attempting to convince a recently widowed mother that she should leave more of the inheritance to that sibling. Not only that, but uh, another sibling was present and they tried to get that other sibling to join in with the little charade, all the while while several other siblings were not present. Something that really disturbs us about a family being separated, doesn't it? That's what's occurring 
in John here in our text today. These people who he's writing to. There are people who originated from within this church family who are now trying to lead others astray from the truth. We find that some appear to have been successful. Others have already departed the flock. And the way which they've conspired to lead others out of the church is by false teaching. As we read earlier in our scriptures, both from Christ and and that of the Apostle Paul, in every era of the church, every period of the church since the cross, false teachers have been working to scatter God's flock and take away disciples after themselves. We read in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, during his final farewell to the church in Ephesus, Paul warns the pastors there to anticipate this is going to happen. He told them, be on guard. He said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And even from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. It's kind of eerie that about three decades after Paul writes this letter to the church, or or actually is there speaking to them, About three decades later, now we have another apostle on the scene, John, who is talking to them about the fulfillment of Paul's prophecy. The churches in the area of Ephesus were seeing a fulfillment of the wolves chewing away at God's flock. Now, before we begin, it's kind of important to recognize one thing about our passage. This doesn't particularly apply to someone who left a church on reasonable terms because they didn't like the type of music. You know, we don't come to the conclusion that, well, you know, because they like these types of instruments, and now that they left, that they went out of us because they weren't really of us, and they must have the spirit of the Antichrist because they don't sing like us. No, th- that's not uh, what John is talking about here. You know, as shallow as choosing a church over the type of instrumentation is, uh, what makes the activity that we observe in this passage that of the spirit of the Antichrist is that it involves false teaching. These these people, these individuals, have portrayed themselves as Christians in the church for some period of time. They've woven themselves into the social fabric of the church. Then they attempt to sow false doctrine into the church. And when and if that fails, hopefully it fails, um, since they now have close friends there, uh, they attempt to harm the church by luring people out after their false doctrine. Um, a little sermon in a sermon here. This is the reason that at our church, to receive or be assigned to a primary role of teaching or leadership, uh, we require that you be a, a member of our church. That is because as a member of our church, you align with the doctrines of our church, and you acknowledge that you will submit to the leadership of the church. So, There has to be guidance, as we've seen in the other texts I've already read, and and you'll continue to see. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So those who are to be recognized uh, by by the community of believers 
uh, as leaders, as teachers, this would be male roles or female roles, there has to be uh, a testing period. A testing period. First Timothy, First Timothy chapter 3 says that designated servants, a diakonos is the word he uses there, from which we get the term deacon, must not only have a good rete- uh, reputation, they must not only not be double-tongued, they must hold firmly to their faith. Verse 10 says, these must first be tested. Tested. And testing here doesn't imply some form of written exam. You know, there's a whole lot of false teachers that come out of Bible colleges and seminaries and everything that can do really well on a theological test and get the answers right. Um, no, this Greek term uh, for testing, dokimatsu, implies an extended period of testing by watching. In fact, it was used to refer to a soldier who had been battle-tested and uh, others who, who known over a period of time were reliable and trustworthy. That's the testing. And this is one reason, by the way, uh, during our call process, many churches don't do this, I was very impressed. After we, we went through my references and, and had months of talking and everything, before the search committee here would even allow me to come out and talk to you folks and meet you folks, they first required that they would fly out to Dallas and speak to my church there to get a, get a background check on me. They wanted to talk to those folks face-to-face. And uh, they wanted to know um, whether or not I had been reliable, whether I'd been a meddler, whether I'd been a troublemaker, whether I'd done what the pastors told me to do in my role. Did I submit to leadership when I was assigned? Now, I'll have to say, Gerald passed the exact same scrutiny. He was known for years in his reputation before he was ever brought on staff here. People knew him. So you don't put a person in a place of influence where they could teach false doctrine without them passing through this period of testing. And why? Well, the dangers are obvious. But let's look at 1 Timothy 5.22. It says, uh, to those overseers, do not lay hands on too quickly and thereby share in responsibility of their sins. Don't lay hands on too quickly. You need to know who these people are before you're letting them teach, before you're letting them influence and weave themselves into the fabric. So I would, if you were desiring a further role in ministry, if you were wanting to Someday be a small group leader, a teacher, a department head. Possibly you even want to go on to Bible college and seminary and eventually someday become a pastor at another church. I would encourage you to plug in. I'd encourage you to persevere in the church. That you'd plug in, people would get to know you, you'd get to have references, and you'd persevere in a biblical atmosphere. Those who are antichrists can't do that. They can't persevere in the church. They can't tolerate sound doctrine. In fact, they'll, they'll go from place to place until they find a church that has lax standards, uh, little commitment, and, and then they'll kind of set in and set their time bomb off there. That's what they'll do. They'll weave themselves in, even to a cautious church. Even to a cautious church. So you and I desperately need to hear today's instruction. Look with me, if you will, at, at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, 
Even now, many antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. God has has worked in different ways through different periods of history with different people. Uh, Some people identify these as a word you might have heard, dispensations. That means different spiritual economies, how things work spiritually. You know, we had Adam and Eve in the garden. That was a little different than what we experience, isn't it? You've got uh, Noah, the period of Noah. Then you've got the commands to Abraham. Finally, uh, we all remember well how God works specifically for a season of time through the nation of Israel, right? This last hour that we find in verse 18 represents the period of the church. This is the church age. When you see these terms, last hour, latter times, last days in Scripture... They describe the church age which we live in. And Christians know from this last hour that we're living in a window of grace. We're in a period of time where Christ is building his church before he comes to judge. This is the last hour. And we remember when John the baptizer, when, when he was in prison, you know, he sent his, his disciples to ask the Lord a question. Do you remember what it is? Are you the expected one or are we to look to someone else, right? Luke 7.20. And essentially, do you remember Jesus' reply? Essentially, it was this. Tell John the blind see, the leopards are cleansed, and the gospel is preached. This is it. This is the last hour. And Christians aren't waiting for a new spiritual economy or, or, or another prophet or Joseph Smith or Charles Taze Russell or David Koresh. We're not waiting for those. We're actually expecting, we see in this verse, the appearance of a satanic ruler, right? We are anticipating an antichrist to rise. What this verse also reveals about the churches in this region of Ephesus now is that they've they've already received extensive instruction about this. That's really no surprise. We know that that Paul founded the church in Ephesus some 30 years earlier than this. Uh, Then, do you remember who he assigned to the church in Ephesus to guide them? Timothy, right? So they've had Paul in Ephesus. They've had Timothy in Ephesus. And if you were here for our introduction to this book, it's very likely that John is now writing this from Ephesus to the little churches around Ephesus. So years later, uh, Apostle John's on the scene. These churches aren't scripturally ignorant. You know what I mean? They're not novices. Um, They already have in their possession by this time, probably close to 90 AD. They have the written gospels. They have the diverse letters from Paul, uh, James, and the others. And they have read the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. They've read this stuff. They know They've been taught and established on foundational principles of Christ, even to the point that they heard the Antichrist is coming, right? They've heard about the Antichrist. So these churches have had their three-day seminars on eschatology. You know, David Jeremiah has come into town and, and talked, had his end times uh, conference with them. And they've talked about these deeper things, what the ends are going to look like. They've had the majority of the scripture in front of them. In fact, it's very likely 
that the only books that they don't have at this time, very likely, we don't know for certain, but likely by this period, they're only lacking 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. That's it. Basically, they've got the Bible. But still, Jude writes this. And Jude is probably the last letter written before John writes here. Jude writes, Some have crept in unnoticed. And their teaching perverse things. They cause divisions. They're worldly-minded. And Jude says they are devoid of the Spirit. Devoid of the Spirit. So John is warning against Antichrist who are false teachers teaching new doctrines. New doctrines. Our text says that these churches understand the Antichrist is coming, but he's not here yet. Instead, what does the Antichrist have? He's got his little minions, right? The Antichrist has minions. They're called Antichrist by John. And we can have confidence we're living in this last age of the church because so many of them are rising up in the church to oppose the church... And John says, from this, we know we're in the last hour. This is what we should expect prior to Christ's return. Here's the encouraging part for us locally, for the local churches in Ephesus and local church right here among us. Uh, When confronted by unified spiritual leadership, biblical leadership, combined with biblical instruction, not all, not all, But many of the Antichrists will become frustrated they can't further their Antichrist, anti-church agenda. They will become very frustrated, and they'll leave. Look at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown, I think the KJ... KJV says it's been made manifest that they are not of us. This Greek word for shown or manifest supplies this idea of a disclosure. It's been made known. It implies something that has now been revealed that previously it wasn't revealed. Previously you couldn't quite tell, but now it has been manifest. And and these antichrists, they were never true believers who somehow lost their salvation, all right? The text uh, teaches they're never Christians. If they'd truly been Christians, it actually says that then they would have remained. They wouldn't have taught the false doctrines. They would have remained with us if they had been of us. So this, this passage is very strong evidence in support of eternal security and the preservation of God's saints. The Antichrist, however, they didn't persevere in the church. They didn't last because they were what? Devoid of the Spirit, right? They could not tolerate the teaching of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2.14 tells us why. You remember that verse? But a natural man, that means the unsaved man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. They're spiritually discerned. The natural man can't receive it. Uh, Since they don't have this anointing of the Holy Spirit, this indwelling Spirit, they're devoid of the Spirit. They're spiritually dead to God. And they can't receive the Word of God. It's foolishness to them. In that same letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it tells us, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
But to us who are being saved, it's what? It's the power of God, even unto salvation. So the best way to purify the church from Antichrist is to preach the word. It's to preach the word. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, listen to this. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, the teaching. For the time will come, he says, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth. That is why Dallas Seminary's motto, by the way, is preach the word. Paul says, preach it, because they're not going to be able to endure it. It's a purifying mechanism. Now, you aren't going to find that in those fancy books on church growth, are you? Most of those aren't going to go that way. A few will. But the majority are going to say, you know what, just, just dumb down the doctrine a little bit. Don't talk so much about Jesus. Make it a little more palatable. Don't offend anybody by mentioning sin. Just tell some interesting stories or you might scare somebody off, right? That's what a lot of churches are doing. And, and they imply by doing so, it's like, well, you never know. After 50 years of coming in and, and, and hearing a few stories here and mentioning Jesus now and then, possibly some of this might rub off on them over time, right? No, no. What you end up with in those situations is a really expensive auditorium with a whole lot of unsaved people in it thinking they're Christian. But Paul says, if they don't want to hear the Bible taught, let them leave. They won't endure it. So Bible preaching, it, it, it doesn't run those who God is calling to repentance off. It doesn't. Scripture calls it a sweet aroma, right, to those who are being saved. Uh, it's what God uses to save people. It's not a danger. It's not a hazard. Instead, the Bible says it drives away the Antichrist. Now, this doesn't mean all large churches are bad. Let me just briefly say that. Uh, the initial church added 3,000 people in one day. You know, big churches aren't bad. I come from a pretty large church, originated from that, and uh, they preached the word. They had grown through evangelism and through preaching the word because people coming from 30, 40, 50 miles each Sunday to hear it. But even our own pastor there, where they run, I think their sanctuary is four, over 4,000 people. They run 2,500 people per service. Even my old pastor says, man, our back door is twice as wide as our front door. People come in. They don't like what they hear. They just move right on out because they can't endure it. In verse 20, and this is contrast to the unsaved people who are devoid of the Spirit, we find that John appeals to those who are saved and actually have the indwelling Spirit. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know the truth, and because no lie is of the truth. These have the Spirit. They already know the truth. They can spot false teaching. They know the lie uh, and those things that contradict the truth because of what they had previously received, right? 
they've already gotten all these scriptures. They've got these pastoral epistles. They've got the gospels. They know what the truth is. So when these people come in with a different teaching, they know it isn't the truth. The Holy Spirit testifies to that. So verse 22, uh, John provides a uh, rhetorical question. He says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Then he supplies this answer. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. If what they've heard, the message from the beginning, abides in them, they will abide in the Father and in the Son. Especially evident in the deceit of those antichrists, of all antichrists, is the denial of the truths about Christ. They distort biblical Christology. That means everything that is revealed in the Bible about Christ, they'll distort. And the Antichrist and the cults, they'll give you an alternative Jesus who's not found in Scripture. We previously discussed this in chapter 1. These people say, you know, Jesus is not the one and only Christ, the one and only Son of God. Um, Instead, they say, he's the one who teaches us how to become gods ourselves. That's Mormonism. God is, Jesus is our God role model. Some proclaim a Christ who's not eternally God, but he's a created being of God who became God. That's Jehovah Witnesses. Antichrist might even claim that we're not reconciled to God through a Savior or a bloodied cross dying for our sin, but but their theology would be replicating Jesus' good works and imitating his seemingly, supposedly, never-ending tolerance of sin, right? That's the liberal church. You become a Christian by being good like Jesus was and tolerating everything you see. That's a false Christ. We have entire denominations. Not against the denominations personally. We have entire denominations that have been taken over by Antichrist. In this situation near Ephesus, they claimed Jesus was not the eternal Christ. They suggested you didn't actually need Jesus to access the Father. That's why John found it necessary to remind them, if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there's one God, we know from other scriptures that that means one triune Godhead. There is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, right? One mediator. In order to have God the Father, you must have God the Son, And in fact, you can see the entire Trinitarian Godhead in this passage. In verse 20, you can look and see that we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit is present in our lives. 
And then in verse 24, it says we must abide in the Son and in the Father, right? So you got the Spirit, the Son, and the Father in this text. Trinitarianism has been foundational Christian doctrine from the beginning. We need to remember, though, we're going to be approached by people about the Trinity. They're going to come to your door. And they're going to tell you, you know what? That word Trinity never appears in the Bible. They, w- they certainly will remind you of that. I promise you. But Christians have never claimed that the word Trinity appears in the Bible. Instead, the word Trinity is used by Christians to describe what we consistently see evident in the Bible. You understand? It's a word we use to describe the Godhead. We see in Christ's baptism, in Matthew chapter 3, for instance, it's consistently evident. It says, the Spirit of God descended like a dove. Now, it didn't say the Spirit of God was a dove. It doesn't say it looked like a dove. It said the Spirit of God descended like a dove, right? And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I, will, whom I am well pleased. So again, you have the eternal Son coming up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove as the Father in heaven himself declares, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That's what we describe as the Trinitarian Godhead. Christians are Trinitarians. We have to to see, too, as we look at this, this is very important. It's striking Since the desire of the spirit of the Antichrist, chapter 4, John calls this the spirit of the Antichrist. Since it's the desire to, it's clearly to separate the Son from the Father and the Father from the Son, this is a salvation deal breaker. It's a salvation deal breaker. You can't have the Father without the Son. You can't have the Son without the Father. You have to abide in the Son and abide in the Father. That was what was taught from the very beginning. The Antichrist wants to sever that because he knows that is a salvation deal breaker. But in verse 24 it says, If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Father and in the Son. Those are those who abide in sound doctrine. They don't waver from it. They don't change it. They certainly don't add to it or take from it, right? Closing verses of Revelation tells us. Jesus' half-brother Jude says in his letter, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you concerning our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. The faith that was once for all handed handed down to the saints from the beginning. They probably have Jude's letter in their hand, the people who have received John's letter now. We're not to receive any new teaching, any new doctrine, anything new that was not present at the beginning. A few of you might have heard of the late theologian, his name was Henry Ironside. Uh, He was a very gifted preacher, a gifted teacher, And uh, he got inspired to preach, actually, by listening to D.L. Moody preach. 
And uh, he, he was very respected. He was a guest lecturer at Dallas Seminary. He taught some classes there. And he even preached at the funeral of Billy Sunday. What do you think of that, huh? That'd be cool. And he, and he wrote many commentaries. I have a few in my library. They're still in use today by a lot of people. And, and Ironside rightly said, and you'll hear this repeated on the Dallas campus quite often by the professors, he said this, and you can remember this. If it is true, it is not new. And if it is new, it is not true. There is nothing new. It is only those who abide in the true doctrine who are the genuine article and receive the promise that is given now in verse 25. This is the promise which he himself made to us. Eternal life. Eternal life. Not temporary life, not conditional life, not if you behave yourself life. He grants eternal, permanent life. We'll, discover, we'll, we'll cover that, eternal security, in a later verse in this same book. We'll continue moving on for right now. Verse 26 exposes a root problem. This is the root problem. John says, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. The Antichrists were trying to deceive by teaching new things that did not mesh with that which they had from the beginning. John says, don't fall for that. You know that's not what we gave you, what the apostles gave you from the beginning. And he continues in verse 27, As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it the anointing, that is, has taught you, you abide in him. Those who'd left the church were trying to deceive those who remained into following them out by offering an alternative Christ and an alternative church. Jesus warned the disciples this would happen. Mark 13, 22. If anyone says to you, Behold, here's the Christ. Or behold, he's there. Jesus said what? Don't believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray. Even signs and wonders. Nothing new. Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light, right? Do many signs and wonders and teach a false Christ. They want to lead astray. The Holy Spirit's anointing that we see here, uh, this indwelling influence that is, that is in your heart, that's in your mind, will enable you to sense false doctrine. I know when Rita and I first became Christians, we were very new. We came to Christ over radio teaching. We didn't have a home church, weren't going to church. So we, for long, very quickly, wanted to find a church, right, that was teaching something. So we tried different things. And boy, you'd hear some strange things out there at these different churches. And when you'd hear them, even as a new believer, really not well read, it's like a wall, like a force field on some of the stuff. You're like, wait a second, no. I don't know what that is, but that is not what I'm sensing is the truth. You don't even have to be a biblical scholar in order to sense when someone's lying to you like the Antichrist. Be cautious. Our sin, very strong, can cause us to accept things. We, we need to be cautious, and we need to be back in the Word. The anointing of the Spirit isn't foolproof. People get deceived. That's why John's telling them, 
be careful. That's why a lot of the letters are like, watch out, be careful. It isn't foolproof without the Word of God attached to it. The Spirit of God teaching with the Word of God. When you hear me, I've said this before, when you hear me or another here on the radio when they're teaching, I've said this before, when you follow along with the text, you're looking at the text that's being taught, and that person who has been gifted by the Holy Spirit is teaching, uh, the Spirit indwelling in you ought to confirm what's being said. It ought to confirm... As I, as I proclaim what God's written, His Holy Spirit teaches you. It confirms to you what the truth is. You should be able to say, Oh yeah, I can sense what He is saying in this passage. That's what the text means. The Spirit confirms to you, Yeah, we're lining up here. This is the truth. That's how the Spirit teaches us through gifted people confirmed by the Spirit as they declare His Word. The verse 27 it's, it's not to be distorted into declaring emancipation from Christ's church. All right? No one's emancipated from the church. The reasoning goes, well, you know, that spirit teaches me, so I don't need anybody else to teach me, and you know, I don't need any pastors to guide me, and I don't need to be accountable to any brothers or sisters in Christ or hear anything different. In fact, I'm just going to sit here at Starbucks and flip my Bible open. I'm going to have church here all by myself. No, that's not what John is teaching here at all. What he means in this context is, is that you don't need this spirit of the Antichrist to teach you anything new, right? That wasn't from the beginning. They didn't need to be taught anything new. And the Holy Spirit would discern for them whether something was new and not from the beginning. This kind of brings us full circle back to our first point about teaching here. Uh, Everybody needs teaching. Everybody, you can't go through the Bible and Scripture without knowing and reading and realizing everybody needs to be taught by others. Gerald and I are taught all the time. We're reading books. We are listening to people preach online. We're listening to one another. We're being taught by one another. I know when uh, I went uh, a couple, three different times, I've been out to what's called the Shepherd's Conference at John MacArthur's Church, which is a conference of pastors. And I recall uh, Pastor MacArthur saying there, He goes, one of the things that I love best about all these guest pastors coming to my church is he'd have a couple dozen people over the week teach to the whole assembly. He goes, I love being taught by these guys. I love being taught. Everybody needs to be taught by fellow Christians. We don't want to be taught anything that wasn't from the beginning. And for accountability and transparency, the teaching is best experienced in a group setting. Some sort of group setting. It's not good to get alone too often and isolated from the group setting because the bad things can happen. Paul said, this is how Paul did it, 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Again, the teaching, the teaching. And, And the Holy Spirit gifted pastors and teachers to explain the scriptures to the body of Christ. But we don't add any doctrine that's new. We don't add anything new. Uh, The false teachers are adding new 
That means new revelation from God. They claim to have new material, an expanding Bible. But the spiritual gift of teaching, it's not a revelatory gift. You're not getting new revelation. God isn't giving me new revelation up here to share with you each Sunday. I shouldn't be sitting up here and saying, God gave me a word. No, 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 no. Um, It shouldn't ever be, you know, God just told me to tell you this today. What is that person doing? They're inserting themselves between you and God, right? They're becoming your mediator. We only have one mediator. If they have a message from God, I've said this before too, tell them, hey, uh, just have God send that directly to me. I have one mediator. It is Jesus Christ. New mediators, that's how the cults work. I've got new information for you. And they lead people away. No, the, the gift of teaching, as we close, it's not a revelatory gift. The gift of teaching is an explanatory gift. God has gifted individuals for the benefit of his church, certain individuals, not everyone, not everybody has the same gift. I have different ones than you, you have different ones than me. But the Holy Spirit's given the ability through prayer and study uh, of shedding light on Scripture. That is what the gift of teaching is, is a person's ability to shed light on the Word of God and explain it in a way where people can understand it. It'd be things that you read at home. It's like, you know what? I just didn't quite notice it while I was at home. But then I came and reread it again at church among others in various settings. Like, wow, that really makes sense. When you hear it, then the Spirit affirms to you. It has taught you the truth. No teacher is perfect. That is for certain. Everybody has to eat crow now and then, don't we? We're all human. We become fatigued, we get tired, we skip things, we miss things. But you really shouldn't walk away every week after being here and saying, you know what? I just don't, after reading that passage, I just don't have any idea, week after week, what this guy is talking about from this passage. I can't see anything in that passage. If that's what's happening, there's a disconnection. Either the pastor is having problems or you're having problems, and we can pray about that. You can come and see us and talk about that. But it should, the Spirit together should constantly teach us. It's important that we protect Christ's church. We don't want anyone to be deceived. Don't let anyone teach you astray. Don't let anyone teach you anything new. Shall we pray? Lord, we, we are humbled that you would give us, Lord, your spirit in order to hear your word, to be taught, to serve, Lord, to, to be gifted. That you would strengthen us in a way that, that, Lord, originates from the divine. Whether it would be showing mercy to people who are struggling, possibly teaching, Lord, leading, all these different gifts in the, in the ways you've shared your spirit with us, Lord. You've made us into one body. Lord, we're so grateful to be surrounded by people who love you, who know you, who stand by the truth of God, who want other people to know the truth, Lord. 
And all of us here want to protect the flock, Lord, from false teaching, from antichrists that you've told us are coming and are here. Lord, we pray for our church. We pray that you'll guide us in everything, Lord, that you'll, you'll prompt us to go out and share the word of God, to, to shed the light of salvation on those in our community, Lord, that we'd be evangelistic in what we do, that we draw people to you through love, Lord, through the truth, through the sacrifice that was made at Calvary, Lord. That is what we proclaim. Lord, as we go into our week now, we pray you'll bless us and keep us, Lord. Teach us, guide us. We know you'll never forsake us, Lord. For that, we thank you and we praise you. In the holy and exalted name of Jesus Christ.